is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over surely. Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, we thank you for being whatever we need you to be. Thank you for being a good shepherd who protects and cares for your sheep, who gives up your life in order for us to have life, Father. Lord, I pray in this moment right now that you would be with us, God, that you would remind us wherever we are in this situation, wherever we are during this service, God, would you remind us you are whatever we need you to be. If we need comforter, you have sent the comforter, your Holy Spirit, to comfort us in all of our affliction. You've been a father to us to provide and protect us. You've been our Savior, God, who redeems and restores our life, God. Whatever we need you to be, you are, Lord, and we praise you for that. We worship you, God. We lift up holy hands, and we praise you, and thank you for your goodness towards us. Father, I pray in this moment, God, whatever we may be facing, experiencing right now, God, will we meditate and pay attention to your loving, gracious presence that you are whatever we need you to be. Provide fresh bread for us this morning, Lord. You said in your word, Lord, that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Would you feed us, God? Would you sustain us this morning? And would you bless us during our time together? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, church. How y'all doing this morning? Uh, again, my name is Pastor Tim, and I have the privilege of proclaiming God's word this morning. You guys can um, stay seated, uh, stay uh, standing right now. We're going to uh, go ahead and get into the word. Uh, I know you guys have been standing up for a minute, but just give me a few more seconds, and then you can rest on your, um, you can rest and have a seat. We'll be in Genesis 50. Specifically, we'll be looking at verse 20, but for the sake of context, I'm going to read Genesis 50 verses 15 through 21. When you got it, say amen. I look like half of us are there. I'm going to give y'all a few more seconds. First book of the Bible, last chapter. Genesis 50 uh, verse 15, it, it reads like this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. They said to one another, if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will surely repay us for all the suffering we caused him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph, please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. Their brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, We are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. 
God planned it for good to bring about this present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Let me read that verse, verse 20, one more time for us. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about this present result, the survival of many people. Father, we thank you for this time and this moment. Father, I pray by the power of your spirit that you would help us to be hearers and doers of your word. Lord, by your grace, would you make it my ambition in this moment to please you and please you alone. Be with us, God, as we seek to be with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. J.D. Otis Roberts speaks to an experience that changed his ministry forever. In his first systematic theology class, he enters the room with confidence in his preparation. He stands before young seminarians prepared to walk them through a course on theology and philosophy. But during the introduction of this class, he shook to the core when one of his students raised a question that he could not answer. One of his students from the deep south, a country boy with a southern drawl, he raised his hand and began to ask him this question. The young man says this. He says, I came from a small town down south. This story is not about me. I know y'all know where I'm from and I got there. This, I'm not making this up. This is actually in the book. I came from a small town down south. All I've known is suffering, poverty, deprivation from the most brutish form of racism. My people share my experience. We are victims of racism at its worst. My call to ministry emerged out of this setting. And I'm here to study the Christian faith in order to comfort and deliver my people. I do not need to prove that God exists. I already know this. But what I really want to know is, does God care? Roberts, this young, ambitious professor, then understood that with all the training he had, he was not a master of this subject. Church, have you ever been in a place where you know God is real, but you question if he cares. You know that God is sovereign, but you feel like his silence is a form of neglect. To know that there is a sovereign being with authority and creative rule who knows all things, who has the power to do all things, but you find yourself in a place where you don't understand the season of life you're in and you are powerless to change it. Accepting God's sovereignty oftentimes is determined by seasons. In seasons of blessing, we celebrate God's control. We say we're blessed and highly favored and we have a positive view on life because we're in seasons of favor. But in 
seasons of struggle and adversity. We groan when we are reminded of the reality that God is in control because sometimes when we hear that God is in control, we think that God is controlling. That God in some way in his sovereignty strips us of agency. That God is allowing things to happen to us that we are helpless in avoiding or getting out of. You feel burdened by the helplessness you feel under the weight of a sovereign God. Being in a place of powerlessness reveals the limitations of our knowledge and our willpower. Some of us in moments of helplessness struggle and wrestle for power in different ways. We think that we know how things should work and how to solve life's problems, but life has a way of exposing that illusion that we have. I've heard it said like this, if you think you have all the answers to life, that just means you don't know all the questions. Like this young black man in his seminary class, hard situations prompt pressing questions. Today I want to encourage and remind us that the Christian life is about learning how to walk by faith, not learning how to live by a formula. Sometimes in wrestles around God's sovereignty, we long for information from God so that we don't have to trust God's wisdom. Some of us in this wrestle for control and power, some of us demand that God tells us what he's doing and then we will do what he tells us to do. But God is never going to tell you what he's up to because he wants you to know who you're dealing with. That God is sovereign. And God, in his sovereignty, does not strip us from agency, but in a specific way, he empowers our agency to obey him and trust him. Today, I want to encourage us that our awareness of God's sovereignty can help us interpret our lives differently. We see in the life of Joseph a God who is in control but is not controlling, a God who is sovereign and in some way he is working behind the scenes to accomplish his divine purpose. One reflection I want us to remember today is this, when we think about God's sovereignty, God is able to apply divine outcomes to human decisions. That God, in his freedom, God gives us freedom to make choices, but God also has a freedom to apply outcomes to choices we make, even when those choices are not in step with his sovereign will. In this passage, we're at the end of Genesis. Joseph is the son of Jacob. He's one of 12 brothers who would later be known as the 12 tribes of Israel. Give you a little background on his family tree. Joseph's father is Jacob. Jacob is a rolling stone. Wherever he laid his hat was his home. Four baby mamas and 12 boys. He's an interesting figure because he's favored by God. He's received the promises of God, but he's one of the most 
detestable characters in the scriptures, favored by God but deceptive, favored by God but manipulates people to get what he wants, favored by God but he's a deadbeat father. We see this specifically in Genesis 34 because he has 12 sons but one of his daughters is named Dinah, the daughter of Leah, the wife that he hates is raped and kidnapped by a wicked politician who abuses his power in the land of Canaan, and Jacob does nothing. His sons, Simeon and Levi, they see their father's inactivity, and in their rage, they violently kill her abuser and all the men in the land, and Jacob is more concerned about his reputation in the country than he is about seeking justice for his daughter. He's favored by God, but unfaithful in many ways. This is the context that Joseph grows up in. He's the favorite son because his mother was Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And rage and jealousy is, is, is filling his brothers. His brothers are filled with envy because Joseph has something that they long for the affection and love of their father. And in their rage, they sell their brother into slavery in hopes of destroying his dream. His dream teaches and shows them that one day he would rule over them in some way, and so they seek to destroy him because of his dream. But in this story, we see God works in mysterious ways. That the dreams that Joseph shares with his brothers are actually established and fulfilled through their wicked plot to destroy him. We first see in this verse, Genesis 50 verse 20, we see the weakness of evil intention. This is in the context where the brothers are in fear of their brother Joseph. He's now in power in Egypt. The Lord has redeemed his life and now they recognize his power and authority in the land. And as they come to him begging for mercy, Joseph reminds them of what they had done to him. Scripture says that Joseph says, yes, you planned evil against me, but God planned it for good. He says, yes, you had intentions to harm me. He starts first with what they had done to him. Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers involves telling the truth about the offense. Yes, Joseph is clothed in power and authority. He's second in command to Pharaoh. He's no longer under the weight of slavery, but that does not mean that he's lost his memory. He names the fact that, yes, you, my brothers, my flesh and blood made a conscious decision to throw me into a dark pit. You heard my cry for mercy and you ignored my cry for help and then you sold me into slavery and I was oppressed for 13 years. You tried to destroy my life. And not only did you do that, but you caused harm to my father because you stripped me of my clothing and you killed an innocent animal, washing my robe in blood to deceive my father into believing that I was dead. You did all these things. Joseph starts by naming what has been done to him 
in this moment, Joseph teaches us something about what we need to know about forgiveness. That sometimes when you sin, oftentimes we are more concerned about our reputation than we are about making things right. They come to him in fear of some type of punishment, but we see that he has to name what has actually been done to them. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 7 about worldly grief and godly grief. Worldly grief is being consumed about how you feel. Worldly grief is being concerned about some type of punishment for what you've done, but godly grief is more concerned about how you change, how you can repent, how can you repair what you have done. Worldly grief is rooted in fear, and godly grief is rooted in love. Joseph Reminds them, yes, I have experienced undeserved, unjust suffering because of what you did. You playing evil against your brother. His awareness, I got somebody who in here talking to me. I got one person who's saying, hey, man, God bless you. His awareness of God's sovereignty, it frees him to tell the truth. This reminds us that God's Sovereignty does not absolve us from human responsibility. God being able to apply divine outcomes to human decisions is never an excuse for evil. Some of us can be tempted to believe that we are invincible because we get away with things that contradict God's word. But Joseph stands as a witness that even when God does not remove evil, that does not mean that he is ignoring evil if we, are, if we are honest about it and tell the truth. He boldly stands in front of his brothers with the memory of his suffering, telling them the truth that you have prayed on my downfall, and I'm fully aware of the plot that you had against my life to destroy my life. But there's a praise in this text. Because after all he's been through, Joseph's very presence in the midst of his brothers tells his brothers about the weakness of their intentions. It tells his brothers, yes, you planned evil against me, but the plan did not work because your power is too weak. You tried to destroy me, but the plan didn't work. You sold me into slavery, but the plan did not work. You deceived my father to make him think that I was dead, but your plans did not work. That's a word for somebody in this church who may be facing some type of betrayal, some type of rejection, some type of difficulty in a relationship where you feel like you've been wronged and accused for something you did not, not do, and you are tempted to pay back evil for evil. You want to get your lick back. But I want to encourage you, if God is for you, then who can be against you? When man plans evil, there's somebody else with a plan. Somebody else with a plan who's working out all things for the good of those who love you. Listen, church, you don't have to respond or react. You have one who has justified you and has not condemned you and who is your judge. You don't have to defend yourself because God has a plan. And his plan exposes, exposes the weakness of the plans of those who plot evil. My Grandmama, when I used to go to her house, she used to have a, a black dog, and he used to always sit right by the door. And as I used to walk down the trail to her house, he always used to growl and bark at me and my sister. And as we were 
young, we used to always be fearful of this dog. We were afraid to go inside the house because we were afraid of his threats. But after a moment in time, my aunt, she used to come to the door and say, why won't y'all come into the house? The, the dog is right there. I think if I walk past him, he'll attack us. But she reminded us, Tim, Christian, this dog is 20 years old. This dog has a lot of bark, but no bite. You can come into the house freely because even though he may threaten you, he has no power to attack you. I want to remind somebody in this church today, your enemies may make plans, but they have no power. Your enemies may plot against you. They may make threats against your life, but they have no strength. Psalms 37, it says it like this, the wicked person schemes against the righteous and he gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at him because he sees his day coming. Church, keep doing what God has told you to do. Keep obeying the Lord. Keep being faithful to what God has called you to do because God is sovereign. And in his sovereignty, he exposes the, weak, the wicked plots and the weakness of these plans by displaying his sovereignty to keep you in the midst of those. Psalms 115.3, it says, our God is in the heaven and he does whatever he pleases. God's sovereignty, it exposes the weakness of evil intentions. God, Joseph has come to understand that the power of God is not only seen in removing evil in the world, but the power of God exposes the weakness of human evil. This is for somebody who has those classic apologetic questions around the existence of suffering and evil in the world. How can a all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God allow bad things to happen to good people? If God is so good, why does suffering exist in our world? Why do we have to go through certain things if God has proclaimed himself to be sovereign? I want to encourage us and from the testimony of Joseph's life, remind us that God removing evil from the world to prove that he's sovereign would be an admission that he lacks power. It would say to his creation that I cannot accomplish my purpose in the presence of evil and that evil and sin truly have the power and I truly have a rival in this world that threatens my authority in my creation. The sovereignty of God means that God is greater than all things in creation, and he is not threatened by the weak plans of sinful men that he has created. I'm going to say that one more time because I don't think half of y'all got that. The sovereignty of God means that he is greater than all things in creation, and he is not threatened by the weak plans of sinful men that he has created. If God was to remove evil in the world, it would be an admission that he is not all-powerful, but in his sovereignty, in his power, he exposes the weak plans, the wicked plans in this world, and he proves his sovereignty, sovereignty through continuing to accomplish his plans in the midst of it. God can, evil cannot destroy the providence of God. It only can serve God's purposes at the end of the day. We see the weakness of evil intentions. They, they planned evil against Joseph, but God planned it for good. 
First, we see the weakness of evil intentions, and now we see the work of divine intervention. Joseph, he says, yes, you plan evil, but somebody else had a plan. This is life after seven years of a famine, and the children of Israel have been preserved through Jacob's life. But now, Jacob, Joseph's life, but Jacob has died. And now Joseph's brothers are afraid of him. God has redeemed him. God has exalted him in the land. And now they see Joseph's power to destroy their lives. But watch this, church. Even in power, Joseph's awareness of God's sovereignty over his situation, it guards him from abusing power and avenging loss. He comforts them instead. He tells them the truth, and then he reminds them that what you did to me ultimately was never about you in the first place. That your plans, this situation, this outcome was never about your wicked intentions. It was about God's divine plan. And this is, this is what messed me up, and I want y'all to pay attention to what Joseph is saying in this moment. Joseph is telling them ultimately that even though you wanted to destroy me, God is so much of a God. God is so sovereign that you actually played a role in your own deliverance and didn't even know it. That you tried to destroy me, but God delivered me so that I could deliver you. Joseph says in this moment, I hate what you did to me. Yes, you've caused me much pain. I've been away from my father for 13 years. I haven't been able to see my younger brother grow up. I've experienced deep persecution and suffering at the hands of oppressive rulers. I've been lied on and cheated on, and I've been through this all alone, and I've not deserved this pain. I didn't deserve this experience. I hate what you did to me, but I'm praising God for what he did through your sin. I'm not minimizing what you did. You planned evil. But I'm also acknowledging what God was doing. You did cause me great pain, but I'm thankful now because I'm able to see that in God's sovereignty, he worked through your sin for a greater purpose. He used me to save you from death. Joseph is on the other side of severe, unjust suffering and now based on his awareness his conviction that God is sovereign he interprets his experience based on the providence of God because through the providence of God he's able to provide for his people he's saying that no you didn't send me here God did God sent me here to preserve you God in his sovereignty can work through bad things to bless his people Biogas is this renewable energy source and it's produced by these raw materials. It's used for heat, for cooking, it generates electricity and fuel for your car. But as I did some research on what biogas does, I was interested to see what this source was made of and I was surprised to hear that these raw materials are animal manure, sewage, and food waste. 
These are unpleasant things. These are nasty things, things we avoid, things that we flush, things that we rid ourselves of. But in some way, these unpleasant materials can be transformed into resources we need to flourish and function in our world. And that's all I'm saying to you this morning, church. God is able in his sovereignty even to use the evil you faced, the evil you have endured. He does not minimize your suffering. He does not minimize your pain, but he's able to transform it. He can transform it and work through it to produce something for you and in you to bless you and your people. God does not minimize the pain that comes from evil. But God is able and he's sovereign and he can work through bad things to bless and preserve his people. The lineage of Abraham is preserved that God's promises are being fulfilled through the presence of Joseph, even in the midst of a wicked and evil plot against him. Joseph, he stands before his brothers. He's wounded and he's healed. He's weeping and he's rejoicing. He's recognized now after 13 years of distress and pain and suffering that God is able to apply divine outcomes to human evil decisions. Going back a little further, we have to see the power in this story. Joseph, he is stripped of his clothing in Genesis 37. They stripped him of his robe and they cover his robe with blood to deceive his father. Evil intentions. When he goes to Egypt as a slave, Potiphar's wife lies on him and accuses him of rape. And as he flees her, she strips him of his clothing and uses it as evidence for her false claim. But what was meant for evil, God is sovereign. And he applies divine outcomes to human decisions. Because in Genesis 41, 42, Joseph is exalted before Pharaoh. When he's in prison, he interprets dreams. He interprets the dreams of the cupbearer, and two years after the cupbearer finds himself back in position among Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is having dreams. And the cupbearer reminds, oh, I know somebody who interprets dreams. And Pharaoh calls Joseph, and he shaves and he gets ready and he presents his resume to Pharaoh of what he can do through what God can do through him. And as he shares what his dream is about, Pharaoh exalts him and lifts him up as authority in Egypt. Joseph, before Pharaoh, he's given a new life. He's free from prison. And what does Pharaoh do? He clothes him with fine linen, a garment of glory and authority. And now, Joseph is being redeemed, and when God redeems his story and exalts him in the land, and his brothers come back because there's a famine in the, in the land and they need preservation, they need security, they need provision, God has placed Joseph in a position to be there. What does Joseph do when he sees his brothers? What does he do when he's reconciled to his brothers? He clothes them with new clothing. He covers them with provision and uses his authority to protect them. And this story is not just about Joseph, Joseph because that sounds like somebody else I know. Somebody who came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. 
They accuse him of blasphemy and inciting a revolt by the religious and the political systems. In his moment of abandonment, they cry out and mock him on the cross, this, this emblem of suffering and shame. They tell him, come down from that cross to prove your power. Prove that you are truly the son of God, but he sits in silence. Before his accusers, he was, as the Bible says, he was silent before his accusers like sheep before his shearers, and he did not open his mouth because he knew something about God's power. He knew something about God's sovereignty that they did not know. The people who accuse him and mock him and reject him, they conclude that God's sovereign power means that he must be saved from death. But God, in his sovereignty, proclaims through his son that God, God is able to save through death. He did not have to come down from the cross because God was going to demonstrate his sovereign power through the cross. He was rejected by men. But the Bible says God highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee must bow and every tongue must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And guess what Jesus does when he's raised from the grave? He goes back, he who was stripped from his clothing and hung on a tree. When he's raised from the dead, guess what he does against those who sinned against him? He clothes us. He clothes us with his righteousness. He clothes us with his holiness. He clothes us with his love. He clothes us with garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness. He clothes us with his patience. He clothes us with his grace towards us. The gospel is the announcement that God is sovereign. God is sovereign and nothing in this world can dethrone God from his throne. God cannot be dethroned from any degree of pain, disaster, or suffering, or failure. If God can bring salvation from a cross, surely he can redeem your situation. Whatever you may be going through in this moment, I want to remind you to look at that cross. That, that cross, this emblem of shame, this instrument of destruction and death, God applies a new meaning because God applies divine outcomes to human decisions. Now we understand this cross is our security for our salvation. This, this, this emblem, this symbol of life after death, God has applied a new meaning to the cross, and that means that he can apply a new meaning to what you're going through. If he can bring salvation from a cross, he can redeem your marriage. If he can bring salvation from a cross, he can redeem your relationship with your children. If he can bring salvation from a cross, he can redeem every relationship that you are facing, every pain that you have, because God is sovereign. And he is greater than everything in his creation, which means that everything is subject to his loving authority in our lives. The gospel does not answer all of our questions, but it does draw us into accepting reality as we experience it. It leads us to the end of ourselves and into new beginnings and possibilities. We see in the life of Joseph that God is able to take human decisions and in his freedom, he transforms those things in order to serve his greater purposes. I encourage you in 
invite you into this reflection, I would encourage you not first to ask God why this is happening. Many of us have those why questions. Why is this happening to me? Why do I have to experience this type or this level of suffering in this world? I want to invite you to another first question. Ask God not first why this is happening, but ask where is God? God has revealed himself in Jesus. Where is Jesus in moments of unexplained, undeserved, unjust suffering? They hung him high and they stretched him wide. God is wherever Jesus is. And if we're able to identify the location of where God is through Jesus, that will give us an assurance that God is with us and he is not abandoning us or forsaking us. God is wherever Jesus is. The cross is the provision for our sins so that we may be forgiven. But it's also the place where we sit. And we endure and we pay attention to the unexplained, undeserved suffering in this evil world. And we sit with Jesus and we wait with Jesus in silence, waiting for God to redeem us and vindicate our cause and judge the evil that we have endured. God is a present help in the time of trouble. And we see that in the truth of the Messiah who, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to the one who judges righteously, the one who is sovereign, even in the midst of unexplained, undeserved suffering. For those who are asking those hard questions, I invite you to sit at the cross to pay attention to the suffering servant who bore our sins on the, on the tree, who not only suffered for our sins, but has ensured that he will suffer with us as we struggle with sin. God, in his sovereignty, has, give, has given us something even better than answers to our questions. He's given us himself in the presence of his son. He himself has suffered, being tempted, and he who has suffered while being tempted is able to help those who are being tempted to react and avenge loss rather than accepting that vengeance belongs to the Lord. The one who is able to apply divine outcomes to human decisions, God's suffering does not strip us from choice. It does not strip us from agency. It actually empowers our obedience and our faithfulness, knowing that God can and will work all things out for the good of those who trust him and who love him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your sovereign hand in our lives. Father, I pray for those in this room who are wrestling with the reality that you are in control. And sometimes knowing that you are in control means that we are coming to a deeper awareness of how much control we don't have. And in light of that, God, we can tend to worry and try to coerce our, ourselves into favorable situations rather than waiting on your sovereign hand to work out things for our good, for the sake of our good and your glory. I pray for our church, Lord, that we would embrace your sovereignty, 
as we reflect that you are able to preserve us and to keep us, to sustain us in the midst of difficult moments and deliver us, God, and actually use what we are going through in order to serve a greater purpose, to bless us and also bless others through what you've done. Father, will we not try to rush the process, the transformation that you do as we wait on you, that you, Lord, are more concerned about our development in our faith than you are about getting us to a destination that we long for. Father, would you help us to learn what it means to trust you and to acknowledge that you are in control and that is a good thing for us. Will we truly be convicted and shaped by the reality that you are truly working out all things for our good? And as we wait, God, will we continue to learn obedience through the things we suffer? Will we learn obedience? Will we learn how to live with a unspeakable joy, a joy rooted and grounded in your presence and not in our circumstances? so that we would testify to, our, to one another and to the world that you are great and you're worthy to be praised. We thank you for this time and we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.